Well, I want to thank you all, first of all, for inviting me to speak to you at your uh, Bible class. It's a privilege. I hope what I have to say proves uh, edifying, encouraging and comforting. I have been asked by the Ecclesia in Hong Kong to send you their loving greetings. As Greg has introduced, the overall theme for the three talks is Christ's Ecclesia and the three studies will have subheadings that I've put up on the screen now. Tonight's study is My Ecclesia, the second one which will be two weeks from now, not next week, on this rock, and then the final study, Christ gave himself for the Ecclesia. Throughout these studies, uh, for the most part, I will be referring to the English Standard Version. In the reading that we have just shared, Matthew chapter 16, we have the first ever mention in the Apostolic Age of the Ecclesia. And it's in the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a unique record not found in any of the Gospels and it's found within the context of a much misused declaration to Peter on this rock I will build my ecclesia in consideration of Jesus' teaching here I believe is often distracted by exaggerated claims made for these verses by the Roman Catholic uh, Church and yet, this is, as I said, the first ever mention historically in the Apostolic Age of the Ecclesia. And so there must be much of a fundamental nature to be learned from what Jesus said. And so as a consequence of that, I suggest that Matthew 16 ought principally to be examined as foundation testimony for understanding the Ecclesia, rather than what I, I sense has been the case, referring to it as a rested scripture. So that's the purpose of the study tonight, uh, next week, and then rounded out by a consideration of teaching in Ephesians 5 in the third week. Now, in the Apostolic Writings, the Ecclesia is usually referred to as God's Ecclesia. In fact, 12 times the Ecclesia is referred to as God's Ecclesia. And only twice, including in Matthew 16, is it ever referred to as Christ's Ecclesia. So it's somewhat surprising that the first ever mention of the Ecclesia in the Apostolic Writings is that it is Christ's Ecclesia. Jesus is very clear, he says, my Ecclesia. And we need to examine why, why that would be so. Why, why would Jesus refer to it as his Ecclesia rather than uh, God's Ecclesia, which is the majority uh, reference in the apostolic writings. Now since Jesus said he is the one who would build it, 
we can understand one reason he might identify the ecclesia as his. But, as I say, the dominant apostolic reference to the ecclesia is God. So we need to much more closely examine the context in Matthew 16 to understand why, in the first ever mention of the ecclesia, Christ referred to it as his. He clearly departs from the majority apostolic practice in this first mention. An, an examination of that begins with a consideration of the manner of Jesus' declaration that he would be the one to build the ecclesia. And we'll come to that. But there is a very simple but challenging point that confronts us uh, from noting that Jesus refers to the Ecclesia here as his Ecclesia and from noting that the majority use is God's Ecclesia in the apostolic writings. But the challenge arises from recognising the fact that our common way of referring to the Ecclesia is actually in direct conflict with Jesus' teaching. And, and in fact, that of itself could be an illustration of our neglect of Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. Um, perhaps because of, the, of a distraction from it being arrested in Scripture, as I mentioned at the outset. Although that would not explain its conflict with other Scriptures that speak clearly of the ecclesia being God's. Now this is the conflict that I'm talking about. How often do we hear disciples speaking or writing of my ecclesia or our ecclesia, while rarely, if ever, referring to the ecclesia in any particular place as God's or Christ's? Steve's opening prayer was remarkably uh, different from our common practice when he was referring to the Ecclesia. It is the most common experience, I suggest, that we refer to the Ecclesia as my Ecclesia, our Ecclesia, their Ecclesia, his Ecclesia, and so on. Now, it might be argued that no harm is meant by this common usage. However, the prevalent apostolic description of the Ecclesia as God's and Christ's calls for deep reflection by us, by us as Jesus' disciples on our practice in this matter. Every time, every time a disciple speaks of my Ecclesia, he or she um, he or she is speaking in a way that could be regarded as usurping God's or Christ's possession of the Ecclesia. Because we're speaking about the Ecclesia as though it's ours, when in reality the Ecclesia is God's and Christ's. And as I say, if we continue in our common practice, we risk usurping God and Christ. And any time that a disciple adopts the common usage that we have amongst us, 
we, we miss an opportunity. We miss an opportunity to remind ourselves and those with whom we are in discussion of the truth of the matter. The ecclesia is Christ's. The ecclesia is God's. It is not ours. And this is important because the more conscious we are of this truth, that the ecclesia is God's and Christ's, the more likely our behaviour in and towards the ecclesia will be, or ought to be, effective for good. And finally, this is a simple point. It is a very simple point. But that simplicity ought not to distract us from the utterly fundamental nature of Jesus' first, te first teaching about the ecclesia. It is his ecclesia, and as we will see, his ecclesia because it is God's ecclesia. It is not ours. And the unexpectedness of Jesus' statement of ownership, rather than describing it as God's ecclesia in this first ever mention, renders the foundational significance of the first mention of the ecclesia, that it is Christ's, even more striking. This demands of us that we sit up and take notice. There's another fundamental point that arises from seeing that Jesus referred to the Ecclesia in Matthew 16 as my Ecclesia. This makes plain that there is a single Ecclesia across time and geography that belongs to him. And the apostolic writings repeat and reinforce this teaching throughout the writings that we find there. One example is seen in Acts. In Acts chapter 20 we read these words, the ecclesia of God which he obtained with his own blood. That's speaking about with the blood of his own, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the apostolic writings also speak, as we know, of ecclesias. For example, we read frequently of the ecclesias of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And since scripture cannot be broken, this plural use cannot be contrary to Jesus' teaching. There is a single ecclesia across time and geography, and yet there are many ecclesias throughout the world and history. And what follows from that is that each ecclesia in any location is only a part of, is an instance of something grander and more glorious than the individual ecclesia in Hong Kong or in Riverwood. Ecclesias, ecclesias throughout the world do well to remember this. Any ecclesia in a specific location is a representative of what Jesus described in Matthew 16. 
And it's evident that this representational responsibility is an aspect of a point made multiple times by the Apostle Paul when writing to the Ecclesians, uh, to the Ecclesia in Corinth. You see there, he wrote, as I teach them everywhere in every Ecclesia. And the point that's being made here is, look, you, the Ecclesia in Corinth, need to bear in mind that you have a responsibility to behave as every other ecclesia in Christ's ecclesia because you have to represent Christ's ecclesia in a responsible way. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 This is my rule in all the ecclesias. Chapter 11, the one I've already mentioned We have no such practice, nor do the ecclesias of God. Chapter 14, as in all the ecclesias of the saints. This emphasizes to us the ecclesias in a particular location, the ecclesia in Hong Kong, the ecclesia in Riverwood is only an instance, it's a representational instance of this grander and more glorious thing, Christ's ecclesia, which is his across time and we all need to be mindful of this representative role in our local decisions and actions. Now, given that the apostolic writings dominantly refer to the Ecclesia as gods, why did Jesus, in the very first instance of the mention of the Ecclesia, refer to it as his, my Ecclesia. And the explanation we're going to find is not just that Jesus said he would be the one to build the Ecclesia, although this is part of it. Rather, in speaking the way that he did, the Lord was referring to a prophetic promise in which we find a much fuller understanding of what our Lord meant. This is because the expression I will build when he said I will build my Ecclesia is a direct reference to the promises to David revealed through Nathan the prophet. The phrase I will build is rare in the Hebrew scriptures and a key instance is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 27. I've put them there on the slides so that you can see them alongside one another. Jesus' words in Matthew 16, On this rock I will build my ecclesia. And then following the revelation of God's promises to David through Nathan the David went in before the Lord, he sat down before him to pray to him. And during his prayer, he uttered these words. For you, O Lord of hosts, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. I will build, as I say, it's very rare in the Hebrew Scriptures, this is a key instance of it. And in case the point needs to be made explicitly, Ecclesia in Matthew 16 and House in 2 Samuel chapter 7 have a common referent. They refer to the same thing. 
You remember the Apostle Paul's testimony, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I refer here to the American Standard Version. The house of God, which is the ecclesia of the living God. And it follows from this that Jesus' statement, I will build an ecclesia, actually replicates the meaning of, I will build a house. Jesus' use of ecclesia in place of the Lord of Hosts' house obviously served to highlight a different functional aspect of what was to be built, but they both refer to the same thing. When the Lord God was revealing things to Nathan, uh, sorry, to David through Nathan the prophet, and he said, I will build a house, he was speaking about that which Jesus was later speaking about when he said, I will build an ecclesia. And yet, it is clear from David's prayer that I will build was something spoken by the Lord of hosts himself. This is God himself speaking. And the Lord of hosts himself said, I will build. And so the use of exactly this expression by Jesus about himself is an additional feature that requires explanation. If, as had been revealed through the prophet Nathan, the Lord of hosts was to build the house, the house that is the ecclesia about which Jesus spoke in Matthew 16, on what grounds could Jesus take the Lord of hosts on words and use them of himself? How could Jesus take God's word, I will build, and say, I will build. It's, it's through exploring these things further that we discover the fuller significance for the Lord's phrase, my ecclesia. And we'll come to that, but I want us to first note how Matthew 16 makes extensive use of the language of 2 Samuel 7 and its background. And this shared language across the two contexts serves to underline the fact that Jesus was certainly employing the words of the Lord of hosts himself when he said, I will build. This shared language across the two contexts shows to us that the mind of the Spirit had in mind to Samuel 7 when the record in Matthew 16 was being laid down. Have a look these across two slides. Uh, you can see major themes of correspondence and some of contrast across these two contexts. We don't have time to look at these in detail. I'm just laying them before you there to show you that the mind of the Spirit is joining together the events of Matthew 16 and 2 Samuel and chapter 7. So, these things help us understand that it's by exploring the significance of 2 Samuel 7 that leads us to understand what Jesus meant more fully when he said, I will build my ecclesia, rather than, for example, I will build God's ecclesia. Now one thing is worth mentioning in passing. 
it's worth observing how this extensive allusion to 2 Samuel 7 and its context enlightens us about how it was that Jesus' father had revealed the truth of Peter's confession to him. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In 2 Samuel 7, David prayed, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have made this revelation to your servant. And we know how that revelation took place. It was through Nathan the prophet. And so just as the prophet Nathan was the instrument of God's revelation to David, so also had the father through a prophet revealed the truth of Peter's confession to him. And doubtless, prophet that had revealed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Evidently, Jesus declared to Peter that it was his father who had revealed this to him, rather than he himself, because he was God's prophet, and as the Lord averred elsewhere, and as recorded in John's Gospel, the father who sent me has given him has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak now what is the significance of Jesus taking the words of the Lord of hosts to describe what he himself would do although David spoke in his prayer of the Lord of hosts having said I will build the prophet Nathan had earlier revealed it would be David's offspring who would perform this work of building the house. Turn with me to 2 Samuel and chapter 7. So the words of the prophet Nathan have been uh, uh, revealed to David and in verse Seven, we find that Nathan the prophet reported these words to uh, to David. He, that is David's offspring, shall build a house for my name. So we already have clues as to the resolution of how Jesus could say, taking the words of the Lord of Hosts himself, "I will build to himself. I will build my creation because." In the revelation of the promises in 2 Samuel 7, God has already explained in part how he would fulfill his promise of building a house for his servant David. He says in verse 13, He, David's offspring, which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, shall build a house for my name. There's no conflict in 2 Samuel 7, speaking of the Lord of hosts and of David's offspring building the house, because this is an oft-seen characteristic of Scripture's description of God's works in which, as an aspect of God manifestation, the Lord of hosts builds his house through his agent, in this case, the offspring of David. 
fact, we can be certain that David's offspring was the agent by whom the Lord of hosts would perform this work, because just prior to this statement by Nathan, and consistent with David's prayer, the prophet had declared it would be the Lord himself who would do this. Have a look at that in verse 11. From the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares you that the Lord will make you a house. That's what David prayed about. And there it says, the Lord will make you a house. But then two verses later, God says through Nathan the prophet, David's offspring would be the one to build it. From these things, we can see clearly that Jesus' use of the Lord of Hosts statement, I will build, of the work that he himself would perform, was a dear, clear declaration and confirmation by our Lord that Jesus was David's offspring who had been promised through Nathan the prophet. Through Nathan the prophet. Plainly also, Jesus was affirming in this declaration that it would be Christ himself who would perform the work of building that the Lord of hosts had promised he would accomplish. There's a lot then in this declaration from the Lord Jesus Christ. I will build my ecclesia. He was actually first of all confirming to Peter that his declaration was true. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yes. Because I am the one who is promised in 2 Samuel 7. And I am the one who is promised in 2 Samuel 7 who would build God's house. But there is more to the matter than this. The prophet Nathan had said that David's offspring would build a house for the Lord's name in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 13. And significantly, the prophet immediately moved on to describe this offspring by employing a clear allusion to, uh, to God's exposition of his own name. This exposition is found in Exodus 3, and 2 Samuel 7 and verse 14 refers explicitly to the Lord's explanation of his name in that chapter. In 2 Samuel 7 and verse 14, Nathan said of the Lord's words to David, I will be to him, that is to David's offspring, I will be to him a father. And I will be explicitly picks up the Lord's explanation of his own name in Exodus chapter 3. I will be who I will be. The opening words of God's promise through Nathan, I will be there, are taken from the Lord's declaration in Exodus chapter 3. And there is actually also a counterpart expression in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 14, which explains still further the identity of who would fulfill Exodus 3 and verse 14. I will be who I will be. Invites the question, well, who is the who? Who, who are you going to be? And 
2 Samuel 7 explains that for us because it goes on to say he shall be to me a son 2 Samuel 7 identifies for us that it is the son who is the one that the Lord God will be and to whom he referred in Exodus 3 and verse 14 again confirming the confession of the uh, of Peter you are the Christ but not just the Christ the son of the living God in fulfillment of God's promise in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 14 I will be to him a father he shall be to me a son and so it is then that Matthew recorded that Jesus positioned the promise of God fathering a son at the heart of this teaching about the Ecclesia. The fact that Jesus Christ is God's son is a fundamental part of the work of building God's house. The fact that Jesus Christ is God's son is a fundamental part of Christ's work of building God's Ecclesia. As part of this, Matthew uniquely reports that Jesus referred overtly to 2 Samuel 7 14 in his blessing of Peter. You remember the words that we've already read them? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, my Father who is in heaven. Elsewhere in Matthew's record, Jesus speaks frequently to his disciples and to the people of Israel as uh, in saying about God he is your father your father and he could have said that in his blessing to Peter it would have made sense wouldn't it for Jesus to have said blessed are you Simon Barjon for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but your father who is in heaven that would have made complete sense but Jesus didn't say that Jesus said my father who is in heaven and the Lord personalised to himself his reference to God as my father in order to emphasise the attention that we need to give to God's promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and in particular in this case I will be to him a father he shall be to me so truly the Lord Jesus Christ was affirming here was the promised son and the promise of him being there as God's son was intimately bound up with the fact that he would be the one to build God's house he would be the one to build God's ecclesia and since this son the Lord Jesus Christ was to be the who of Exodus 3.14 in whom God would fulfill the significance of his name here was the one who would inherit his father's excellent name and you remember in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 14 God said he, David's offspring will build a house for my name here is the one who would inherit God's name the Lord Jesus Christ 
And so the house that was to be built for the Lord's name was to be the house bearing the Father's name in Christ. The house which is the ecclesia is Christ's because as God's Son, Jesus bears his Father's name. Let's turn to Hebrews in chapter 3 because we find a very helpful summary there of some of these things. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honour than the house itself. And remember, Jesus said, I will build my house. And this builder has more honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And we have a helpful summary there. It summarises the meaning and consequence of the things that we've considered in a context in which the apostolic writer spoke of God's house. God's house has many contributors. One example that's given there is Moses, who was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Likewise, throughout the ages since Moses, including in the apostolic age, including in our age, there have been and there will be many contributors, small and great, to the building of Christ's ecclesia. But a fundamental consequence of the things that we have seen in Jesus' declaration is that all such contributors, in order to be faithful in discharging their work, must do so fully recognising whose ecclesia it is, so that we fulfil our work as his servants, as Moses was God's servant. Christ, as God's son, is a very different contributor to the building of God's house. While it is true that God is, as we read in Hebrews 3, the builder of all things, the one appointed by God to be the builder of his house is Christ, who is over God's house as a fuller understanding of Jesus' declaration about the apostolic ecclesia flows from these things. Christ was the one who would build this ecclesia as God's Son. And by that, he would fulfill the Lord of hosts' promise through Nathan about what the Lord himself, the Lord of hosts himself, perform. In doing so, Christ is seen to be a more glorious agent of God than any other involved in God's manifestation. The fact that Jesus is God's Son means he is the only one 
the only one who could build this house and be over it both for the Lord's name Jesus could take to himself his father's words I will build because he is God's son and the grandest ever fulfillment of I will be who I will be in fact the prophetic future sense evident in Jesus's I will build and now be seen to be a crucial aspect of Christ's being the who of whom God had said I will be because God was his father Jesus could be given a more excellent name so that he could be over the house which was built for his father's name and taking all these things together then it is entirely to be expected that when speaking of God's apostolic inclusion for the first time ever Jesus would say my inclusion now before we conclude let's just note some fundamental things that I believe flow from the things that we have been considering this evening. The Ecclesia is Christ's because the Ecclesia is God's and Christ is his son. Jesus is the one who fulfills God's name. In fact, he fulfills God's name in part through building an Ecclesia for his father's name. Contra contrarily, the Ecclesia is not ours. Despite the common way we speak about the Ecclesia, it is not ours. It is God's. Because it is God's and Christ is his son, it is Christ's. There is a single Ecclesia across time and geography. Each Ecclesia in any locality here in Hong Kong, there in Riverwood, is a representative instance of the single ecclesia. And this brings upon every one of us, upon each local ecclesia, responsibilities that are greater and better than ourselves. The responsibilities are beyond ourselves. And we need to bear this in mind in anything that side to. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who builds his ecclesia and we need to remember this as Steve said in his opening prayer unless the book the Lord builds the house it is in vain those who build it. Any contributor to this work of building must recognize and acknowledge that we do so as his servants in his house and by confessing the truth regarding whose house it is. So thank you for your time. I'm happy to hand back to Greg now. Happy to take any questions. Happy to take any disagreements if there are any.
you very much, Peter. And uh, as Peter said, uh, if there are any uh, comments or questions, anyone uh, here in the hall who'd like to raise any questions, either agree to come up here and raise them or maybe yell them out. And if it cannot be heard, I can re-echo them. Or other people also happen to be on Zoom there. If there's any questions that you'd like to raise for Peter, then please feel free to do so now. activity. I warned Peter that uh, it hasn't been historically a... Uh... So a reminder that uh, the three studies that we are going through together have the general theme of Christ's Ecclesia. Uh, last study we considered Jesus' statement in Matthew 16 where he refers to the Ecclesia for the very first time in apostolic history as my Ecclesia. Um, we're now going to consider what the Lord Jesus Christ moved on to say about uh, his Ecclesia and his building of it in Matthew 16. And that's under the title, On This Rock. It's clear from this that uh, when our Lord Jesus Christ first spoke of his Ecclesia and of his intention to build it, that he identified clearly a place where this would happen. On this rock I will build my Ecclesia. But the question we need to ask ourselves is who or what is this rock? And what does this tell us about Christ's Ecclesia. And to begin answering these questions, we need to recognise that Jesus' pronouncement about this was a direct response to Peter's confession, and that the confession strongly resonates with what we discovered about Christ's Ecclesia in the first study. At the time that Jesus asked all of his disciples about his identity, Peter was the one to reply. And we just read his response there. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this confession speaks expressly of things that qualified Jesus to declare the Ecclesia to be his. And of the fact that he would be the one to build the Ecclesia, God's house. We saw that in the first study. That it was the fact that Jesus is God's son that qualifies our Lord to do these things. And as was the case with Jesus' declaration, Peter's confession testified to the fulfilment of God's covenant promise revealed through Nathan the prophet. Again, that is something that we considered in our first study. Jesus' statement, I, uh, I will build my ecclesia on this rock, clearly affirmed the truth of his disciples' confession. That is, that he is indeed, that Jesus is indeed David's promised offspring, and therefore the Son of God of whom Nathan spoke. In fact, the picture of his own sonship that Jesus painted from the Hebrew Scriptures mirrored 
but also extended the truth of Peter's confession. And in this respect, the way that Jesus constructed teaching about his ecclesia in response to the truth of Peter's confession belies scholarly claims that Jesus never claimed to be the Christ or the Son of God. It's important to recognise that the understanding summarised by Peter's confession and the fact that Jesus chose this moment to speak of building his ecclesia together reveals something fundamental regarding the identity of Christ's ecclesia. The ecclesia is clearly related to a true confession of who Jesus is. And it follows from this that whatever people might claim about being the church, it is those who make a true confession about who Jesus is who meet an essential criterion to be members of Christ's Ecclesia. And Peter's confession, we need to recognise, is not just a form of words. His confession is interpreted very differently by a range of different confessions, such as Adoptionism, or Socinianism, or Arianism, or Trinitarianism. Evidently, it is only belief of the truth underlying Peter's confession that qualifies people to be members of Christ's Ecclesia. Now the resonance between Jesus' statement about building his Ecclesia, including what this teaches about his qualifications for being the one who could do so, the resonance between those things and the truth underlying Peter's confession leads us to an understanding of what Jesus meant when he declared that it would be on this rock that his ecclesia would be built. And that's what we're going to proceed to explore in this study. Why did Jesus introduce the rock at this point? He could have said, and I tell you, I will build my ecclesia. And that would have made sense. The introduction of the rock at this point in Jesus' statement was clay, clearly, is plainly not an incidental fact. Now we saw in the first study that Jesus directed attention to the covenant of promise revealed through Nathan the prophet, laid out in 2 Samuel 7, when he spoke of building his ecclesia. What we're going to see now is that his expression, this rock, is also an allusion to the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, it's an allusion to two Hebrew prophecies. Before considering the significance of these prophecies to our Lord's declaration, it will be helpful to consider how the two distinct prophecies are closely associated with one another, an association which is forged completely by their fulfilment in Christ. And this fact is highlighted by the Apostle Paul. In Romans, 
The Apostle Paul wrote about the unbelief of the Jews by drawing on the prophet Isaiah. And we read in Romans 9 these words. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. And the word rock there in rock of offence is the word that the Lord Jesus Christ used in Matthew chapter 16 about the place where he would build his ecclesia. Now when the Apostle Paul said, as it is written, he was actually combining two separate prophecies from Isaiah. And we can see those in this table in front of us. Romans chapter 9, Behold, I am laying in Zion, is taken from Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. Behold, I am the one who has laid a stone, who has laid a foundation. And then in Romans chapter 9 verse 33, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence is taken from Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 14, a stone of offence and a rock of stumbling. Now, through combining these two prophecies, the Apostle Paul highlighted Christ's touchstone function. Those who encountered Jesus would fall into one of two classes of people. Either they would believe, and Isaiah 28 and verse 16 speaks about them, and they would not be put to shame. Or there'll be another class of people and they would be offended by Jesus' messianic claims and as a consequence they would stumble and fall. As the Apostle Peter concluded by referencing the same two oracles from Isaiah, he wrote, The honour is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, they stumble because they disobey the word. And with this clear apostolic teaching, we can see that on the one hand, when Jesus was referring to these two prophecies in Isaiah by his expression, this rock, on the one hand, he was anticipating that there would be Jews who would stumble and be offended because of their unbelief in him and in his work of building the Ecclesia. On the other hand, by introducing the rock, Jesus was claiming against the deceitful schemes of the rulers in Jerusalem, which is the context in Isaiah 28, that Isaiah's promise of a foundation being laid by the Lord God was now being fulfilled. It was being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's also evident from the fact that Jesus, in saying these things, was responding to Peter, that this work was being also furthered through Peter's confession itself. And we'll see more on that matter later. Now, in passing, it is important to reflect on Jesus' anticipation of the unbelief of the Jews. The matter of belief or unbelief turned for the Jews 
for the most part, on whether Jesus was the Christ or not. And given the touchstone issue of the true meaning of Peter's confession, it is evident that the rocker of offence is not a pattern which is limited to Jewish reaction to the law's true identity. It clearly also finds application among the various and completing claims to true Christianity that persist in our, in our age. Now the introduction of the rock at this point in Matthew's narrative also served to provide more information about Christ's work of building his ecclesia. And to explore this further, we need to analyse what Jesus meant in the immediate context by this rock. To what does it refer? To who does it refer? Now, there are several features of Matthew's record which together establish that the rock on which the ecclesia would be built includes two distinct things, but they combine together. The two distinct things are, as we will see, the truth of Peter's confession, but also Peter himself. It's the combination of these two, the truth of Peter's confession and Peter as an apostle, which are the rock to which our Lord referred. And we're going to examine these features that show this thing in more detail in the remainder of this study. Well, let's think about the confession first. Uh, th I think this is probably more familiar to us as an identity for the rock. We're going to see quite a lot of detail in Matthew's Gospel that reinforces our uh, what is probably more our uh, intuition than it is this confession that is referenced by the rock. Well, the first matter that identifies Peter's confession as an aspect of the rock on which Christ's ecclesia will be built is the way that Jesus' response to his apostle picked up some of his own earlier teaching. When Jesus said... On this rock I will build my ecclesia. He was actually repeating language from some of his earlier discourse in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7, we'll have a look at it in a moment. In Matthew 7, the Gospel writer employed the same Greek words for on, rock and to build. And it's important to note that this is not a common combination of these three expressions. In fact, the only other instance of the combination of those three expressions is in Luke chapter 6. And that's an account which is parallel to the one that we're about to turn to in Matthew and chapter 7. So let's go to Matthew chapter 7. We read there in the context of Jesus speaking about um, the difference between two kinds of hearers. Uh, 
in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And you can see on the PowerPoint slide there, the three uh, expressions combined together, only in these two places and also then in Luke, the parallel to Matthew in chapter 7. This is not coincidental. And it's evident that the same language that Jesus used in Matthew 16 was employed in his discourse in Matthew 7, in the parable there, as a metaphor for hearing and doing Christ's words. And the correspondence of the metaphor in Matthew 7 with what we see in Matthew 16 can be readily seen. Peter had heard the words that Jesus' father had revealed to him. And he had evidently believed them. Peter's confession gave voice to this belief. And that is like a man who builds his house on a rock. This confession was a performance of what the Apostle Peter had believed. And it's evident from the Apostle's rendering of Psalm 116 verse 10, I believed and therefore have I spoken. That's what Peter was doing. He had believed, therefore he had spoken. And he is one who fulfills the parable that we see in Matthew chapter 7. And so it is then that Peter had heard the Father's words through Christ. And he had performed the necessary consequences of his belief of those words by speaking them in his confession. He declared, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this correspondence between these two contexts identifies the truth of Peter's confession as an aspect of the rock. But that's not the end of the proof or of the evidence of this matter. Because there are three other features of correspondence between Matthew 7 and Matthew 16 which underline Jesus' reference to the parable of building the house on the rock. And the conclusion, therefore, that Peter's confession is an aspect of the rock. I've listed those three other instances of correspondence in the table on the PowerPoint slide there. The first is one that we mentioned in our first study. At a deeper layer of its meaning, the house of Matthew 7 obviously shares the same reference as Christ's ecclesia. It's the same thing. There's a second feature which confirms the identity of Peter's confession as the rock. And that is, in Matthew 16, Jesus spoke of his Father in this way. My Father who is in heaven. That phrase, my Father who is in heaven, is employed seven times in Matthew's Gospel. And the first instance of it is in Matthew 7, in verse 21. So again, you know, the, the, the statement of our Lord in Matthew 16 resonates strongly with his earlier parable about needing to be careful how we hear in Matthew and chapter 7. 
And clearly, there is also another third confirmatory feature in the final one listed there. Jesus moved on to say, The gates of hell shall not prevail against my ecclesia. And in Matthew 7, about another house, sorry, about the house that is founded on the rock, he said, The rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat upon it, but it did not fall because it had been founded on a rock. This use, uh, this statement, the parable, is in a context of uh, Jesus' warning against those who claimed they had performed many mighty works in the Lord's name, whereas in reality they had been workers of iniquity. And this relates to Jesus' parable of building a house on the rock because it was against such people that the parable was spoken. And this feature about the gates of hell not prevailing against his ecclesia is clearly talking about the acts of the workers of iniquity against whom the Lord spoke the parable in Matthew 7. But they would not prevail against Christ's ecclesia because it was built on this rock. These multiple points of connection between Matthew 7 and 16 combine to show that Christ was certainly identifying the truth of Peter's confession as an aspect of the rock on which his ecclesia would be built. The rock which Isaiah had prophesied would be laid in Zion by the Lord God is the one confessed by Peter, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this serves also to reinforce the point that we made earlier. Whatever people might claim about being the church, it is those who make a true confession about who Jesus is who can qualify to be members of his ecclesia. Given Christ's ecclesia was to be built on the truth of Peter's confession, Anyone confessing something different is not a member of his ecclesia. So, incontrovertibly, Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is, is an aspect of that to which our Lord referred when he said, on this rock I will build my ecclesia. But what about the other aspect that I say is being referred to, Peter himself? Well, there are two aspects of Matthew's record that demonstrate we cannot separate Peter out from his confession, as though he is not included as part of the rock. And these aspects establish the obvious fact that Peter's confession did not exist independently of him. The first aspect arises from recognising the linguistic pun that is laid out in Jesus' statement. I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, 
Petra, I will build my ecclesia. We all recognize this, we know these things, but I do not believe we have made sufficient of this deliberate pun. Because in, in employing the pun, Jesus included Peter alongside his confession as the rock upon which he would build his ecclesia. And this is rendered even more evident by considering alternative ways in which Jesus could have voiced his teaching about building his ecclesia. Jesus could have said this, for example, and I tell you, on this rock I will build my ecclesia. He, that would have still been a reference to the prophecies in Isaiah that we've already considered. It would still have been a reference to the language in Matthew 7 and the parable about building a house on a rock in that place. And so the inclusion of, I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, was clearly intentional, purposeful, and in the pun, the Lord Jesus Christ was including Peter as part of the rock. The sentence that's on the screen now makes complete sense. And it establishes what we've already seen. That the truth of Peter's confession formed the rock upon which Jesus rebuilt his ecclesia. But consideration of this alternative way the Lord could have spoken shows that the Lord Jesus Christ deliberately included the pun on Peter's name to encompass Peter as an aspect of the rock. Let's think about another possibility which further underlines this conclusion while also introducing the second aspect that I mentioned at the outset which shows that Peter is integral with his confession and therefore part of the, the rock. I've expanded it uh, a little more from the, uh, the brief version. Jesus could have said and I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my ecclesia. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, and I tell you, you are Peter. There's, a, there's, there's this quite emphatic direction of Jesus' attention and of the disciples listening in and of Peter himself. You are Peter. This sentence on the screen now would have made complete sense and yet Jesus emphasized his pun on the apostle's name by addressing him with the follower you are Peter why did the Lord Jesus Christ say that well the inclusion of this phrase deliberately reflected on Jesus's first encounter with Peter when our Lord revealed a prophetic naming of his apostle and we're going to see that in more detail in a moment. But before pursuing that, we should note how this fuller expression served to place Peter at the heart of the Lord's purpose. And, therefore, positioned his apostle as an aspect of the rock upon which he would build his ecclesia. Peter, together with his, with his confession, uh, an integral portrayal of that upon which the Ecclesia would be built.
So let's now turn to the second aspect, which demonstrates we cannot separate Peter out from his confession. And it turns on recognising this particular way of directing attention to Peter that our Lord employed. You are Peter. As I said, it's, this, it's uh, something that refers back. And it's the second of only two instances in which Jesus personally drew attention to Simon being surnamed Peter. The first occurred at the time Peter was introduced to Jesus by Andrew, his brother. It's in John chapter 1. We read there, Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon. Same, same kind of expression. You are Peter. You are Simon. You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now there's two matters that arise from recognising this. First, it is evident that Jesus' statement, You are Peter, deliberately referred to his surname of Pe surnaming of Peter in John 1 and 42. And through this, Jesus reminded Peter of that event. And this actually helped to develop Peter's understanding of why he had been surnamed that way in his first encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is prophetic of the role that the Lord Jesus Christ was now speaking about as he spoke about building his ecclesia on a rock. It is clear Jesus was prophesying to Simon concerning his future role in the building of Christ's ecclesia. Peter, together with the truth of his confession, were to be the rock on which Christ's ecclesia would be built. That's the first matter that arises from seeing this connection with John chapter 1. The second matter is that Andrew had introduced Jesus to Peter in John chapter 1 by saying, We have found the Messiah. And in referring to this introduction, Jesus was also highlighting how much Peter had learned and grown since that first meeting. Peter was introduced to Jesus as, This, this is the Messiah, we found him. The, uh, through the revelation of God to Peter, through Jesus' teaching, Peter was able to confess so much more at this point in Jesus' ministry. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This confessed so much more than Peter's first and early understanding. And taking his full circle, this aspect further establishes it was Peter's confession that functioned as the rock on which Christ's ecclesia would be built. So it is then that alongside the fact that it was to be the truth of Peter's confession, which would be the rock on which the apostolic ecclesia would be built, it was also Peter himself. The conclusion that Peter is part of the rock 
should not surprise us. The Apostle Paul confirmed that all the Apostles participated in a similar role when he wrote about the household of God being built. Have a look at that in Ephesians and chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read these words in verse 20 about the household of God. It is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Peter obviously is one of the apostles that is spoken about there who comprise this foundation on which God's house is being built. And so the identification of Peter as an aspect of the rock on which Christ spoke rings true. In fact, such a foundational role for Jesus' disciples is hinted at in Isaiah's prophecy, which we have briefly considered. Go with me to Isaiah and chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8 is the mention of the rock where it becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. But there's much more to that context than learning that. Have a look at verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. So the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostles, including Peter, are part of this prophecy in Isaiah and chapter 8. And in the context of speaking about the rock becoming a cause of offence to some, the prophet, speaking in the spirit of Christ, added that testimony and teaching would be sealed among Christ's disciples. And it's clear that the testimony that is spoken about there corresponds to that which we have been, uh, that which had been learned and confessed by Peter when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This was the sealing of the testimony that disciples in Isaiah 8, uh, Isaiah 8 needed to learn. Have a look further at what is said in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 18. Behold, this is the Spirit of Christ in Isaiah speaking again, so this is Christ speaking. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So it wasn't to be Christ alone who would be for signs and portents in Israel, but also the children given to him by the Lord. They were to function in this work of testimony in signs and portents along with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's evident from this that the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, those given to him by his God, 
were to be a fundamental part of Christ's work in enlightening the Jews that is spoken about in Isaiah The Jews both in the land and in the diaspora. And these were the people from whom in the beginning Christ's ecclesia would be built. Now none of this diminishes Christ's preeminent role in the foundation, nor his claim about the ecclesia being his. In the foundation described in Ephesians 2 and prophesied in Isaiah 28, Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. And consequently, the other foundation components have no true function without him. It follows from this that the ecclesia is Christ's. Furthermore, Jesus' reference to Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16 when he said this rock and where it says in Isaiah 28 16 behold I am laying in Zion that adds another dimension to our understanding of the Lord's purpose in telling Peter that it was his father who had revealed the truth of Peter's confession to him it was the Lord God of hosts who said these words in Isaiah chapter 28 behold I am laying in Zion and when Jesus told Peter that the Father in heaven had revealed these things to Peter, he was outlining the fact that the revelation of the truth of Peter's confession to Peter by his Father in heaven was a work of progression of God laying this foundation in Zion. And Peter's participation participation in the foundation was because of the father's work was being fulfilled in him in Peter through his confession not because the apostle usurped God's son the part played in this work by the truth of Peter's confession together with his apostolic role the rock of which Jesus spoke is highlighted by the prominent part that the Apostle Peter fulfilled in working for Christ when the Lord was building his Ecclesia. We can see Peter's foundational role in the next slide, which has still not come up on oh it has now. It's come up on your screen now. These are some fundamental things in which Peter took the lead in the work of building Christ's Ecclesia, evidencing the truth of, Peter, of the Lord Jesus Christ's prophecy that it would be on this rock that he would build his Ecclesia. Peter was the one to lead the work of replacing Judas Iscariot so that the full number of apostles making up the foundation that is spoken about in Ephesians 2 might be in place. It was Peter who took the lead in the first massive addition to the Ecclesia in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. It was Peter with John who was the one sent to Samaria to confirm Samaritan participation in the Ecclesia through both the laying on of hands and the Samaritan's reception of the Holy Spirit. It was Peter who was the one that was chosen as the one to initiate 
and bear witness to the inclusion of Gentiles into the Ecclesia through faith, even though he wasn't the apostle to the Gentiles, as we know. This prominence of Peter, not only the truth of his confession, is reflective of his willingness to take the lead on behalf of all the apostles regarding the things that together they believed. And the fact that Peter was the one who was able to do this is reflected in the record in Matthew 16. Jesus asked all his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Peter was the only one to make the foundational confession that we read in Matthew 16. And that exemplifies his foundational role in an excellent way. Well, it's evident from the above study that we have done that Christ's mention of the rock prepared the basis for understanding that his work of building the Ecclesia would be fulfilled by those whom he chose to cooperate with him in this work. In fact, in that, we see a repeated pattern because there's an analogy struck there with what we have seen before. We've already seen in the first study uh, that David's seed was the appointed agent through which God would build his house. Now we see in this pattern that Christ was appointing his apostles with Peter at the head to the work of building his ecclesia because he is God's son. And so whenever we witness the Apostle Peter and the other apostles and prophets actively involved in building the ecclesia through preaching and teaching, it is clear from Jesus' declaration that this was Christ's work of building his ecclesia. There's things that flow from that. There's things that we need to keep in mind as we consider the work of the apostles laid out for us in the apostolic writings. The apostolic and prophetic work did not diminish Christ's role or his right to ownership of his ecclesia. The work of the apostles and prophets was Christ's own work in fulfilment of his promise that he laid out uh, as recorded in Matthew chapter 16. It follows from this that we must not degrade our estimation of apostolic doctrine as though it is somehow less than our Lord's teaching. The things that the apostles taught are our Lord's teaching as he established and built his ecclesia. And it's evident by analogy that we must see any contribution we can make toward the building of Christ's ecclesia through the, ex uh, through the example of his especially chosen apostles all our such work is Christ's and not our own. And we must see it as such.
So there's some fundamental things that we've learned from considering the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ about the place where he would build his ecclesia on this rock. The, the identity of Christ's ecclesia turns on a true confession of who he is. The Christ, the son of the living God. The work of the apostles and prophets was not their own. It was Christ's work. And we must accord their teaching Christ's authority. And likewise, by analogy, in our service. We must see from the apostles' example that any of our work directed at building Christ's ecclesia is his work and not our own. I hope all of you can hear me okay. Good, thank you. Good to be with you all again after quite a long break um, to resume our studies of Christ's Ecclesia. And um, I think given the passage of time, it would be sensible to reflect on some of the fundamental conclusions we reached in our first two studies when we were studying uh, the topic of my ecclesia we saw that Christ's ecclesia is his because the ecclesia is God's and Christ is his son and Jesus is the one who fulfills God's name in fact he fulfills God's name in part through building an ecclesia for his father's name and this is quite contrary to what is common amongst us when we refer to the Ecclesia as our Ecclesia. It is not ours, it is Christ's and it's God's. And it follows from the fact that Jesus is God's Son that there is none greater than him in God's manifestation. That he alone among men including angels for that matter could refer to God's ecclesia as his own this is a unique circumstance for our Lord there is a single ecclesia as well we have seen across time and geography in each ecclesia in a locality is a representative instance of this single ecclesia and this brings upon us all as ecclesias in each local ecclesia responsibilities greater than and beyond ourselves and finally we saw that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who builds his ecclesia and any contributor to the work of building must recognize and acknowledge this that we do so as his servants in his house and by confessing the truth regarding whose house it is. And then in the second study we considered Jesus' statement about it being on this rock that he would build his ecclesia. And we saw in that study that the identity of Christ's ecclesia turns on a true confession 
of who he is, the Christ, the Son of the living God. We also considered that the work of the apostles and prophets in the apostolic age was not their own. It was Christ's work and consequently we must accord their teaching Christ's authority. And likewise, by analogy, in our service, we must see from the Apostles' example that any of our work directed at building Christ's Ecclesia is his work, and it's not our own. And that brings us then to our third topic under the general subject of Christ's Ecclesia. Our third topic is Christ gave himself for the Ecclesia. Let's turn again to Matthew and chapter 16 and reflect again on what Jesus said there about his ecclesia. In Matthew chapter 16, we read in verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia. And the point I want to emphasise at this time is that in this first mention of his ecclesia Jesus spoke of the work of building as something that was to be accomplished at a future time he said I will build my ecclesia if if this building work had already commenced Jesus could have employed a quite different tense in order to make this clear he could have said I am building the work had already started, he could have intended. But Jesus unequivocally positioned his work in the future. And that begs the question, what was it that was still awaited for his work of building to begin? And it's significant that, having spoken of his ecclesia for the first time, Jesus proceeded immediately to teach his disciples about his suffering and death in Jerusalem and his resurrection on the third day. We read that in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. We read there in Matthew, from that time, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And it's significant that just as it is only Matthew who recorded Jesus' teaching about his ecclesia, so it is only this gospel writer who emphasised that it was at this time, it was at this time that the Lord began such teaching about his suffering and death. And this points strongly for us to what was still needed to take place before Jesus commenced building his ecclesia. In our second study, in the study on this rock, we saw that Jesus alluded to Isaiah 28 and verse 16, where the Lord God said that in Zion he would lay a stone. And that reference, that allusion to 
Isaiah 28.16 serves to confirm what we sense already. That is, Jesus' mention immediately after speaking about his ecclesia of his death uh, through his suffering at the hands of wicked men was what was awaited before his work of building would begin. It confirms that for us. How do we know that? Well, two other apostolic writings expressly refer to the prophecy in Isaiah 28 and verse 16. We're familiar with them, there's no need to turn to them. They're in Romans 9 and 1 Peter 2. And in those scriptures we read, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. Now, the relevance of that is that the exact form of the Greek verb employed in those two places, in Romans 9 and in 1 Peter 2, for I am laying, are found on only three other occasions in the Apostolic Writings, clustered together in John's record in chapter 10. So please turn there with me to John and chapter 10. We've got them up on the screen there, but there's something else I want to see in John 10 when we get there. We see that three times Jesus emphasised in his teaching there, using the verb that was is used later to refer to, to allude to Isaiah chapter 28. He refers to the laying down of his life using that verb. John chapter 10 verse 15. I lay down my life for the sheep. John chapter 10 and verse 17. I lay down my life. John chapter 10 and verse 18. I lay it down of my own accord. These three statements then, all from the mouth of Jesus, clearly allude to the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. And as we have seen previously when we considered Jesus' teaching about his building of the Ecclesia in Matthew 16, so also in these declarations we see that the Lord Jesus employed the exact words of the Lord God himself in which God described what he would do, Jesus employed those words about himself to say what the Son would accomplish. And in fact, it's in the context of these statements that Jesus explained how it could be that he could employ the words of the Lord God himself about the work that he would do in obedience to the Lord. John chapter 10 and verse 18 continues verse 18 at the beginning says no one takes it from me but I lay it down of mine own accord I have authority to take it up again sorry I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again this charge I have received from my father so Jesus, we are told, by our Lord, was able to perform God's work, which God said he would do, in Isaiah 28 and verse 16. And he could take his father's words to himself and say, I lay down, 
when the father had said that he would be the one to lay down because Jesus had received his father's authority to do so and this develops further the theme of God manifestation which we have already seen was embedded is embedded within Jesus's teaching about his ecclesia for the purpose of this study though, there are three main points that I want to draw from what we have just seen the first is that the fulfillment of God's promise of laying a foundation stone inside included the promise that his son would lay down his life for his sheep. It doesn't seem obvious to us in Isaiah 28 that that's the significance of what God says there, but we learn from Jesus' exposition of it that that is part of its meaning. And it follows from this that the death of our Lord Jesus Christ was a sacrificial death which forms a fundamental part of the Ecclesia's foundation because it is the foundation that was being laid in Zion, we learn in Isaiah 28. And Christ's death then is a fundamental part of the foundation of the Ecclesia. And finally, to confirm what we had already sensed from the context in Matthew 16, was Christ's laying down of his life that was still awaited before his work of building his ecclesia upon that foundation could begin. Now we read about the laying down of our Lord's life in the reading that we took from Ephesians 5 and it's to that context that I now want to turn our attention. We read there in verse 25 Christ loved the Ecclesia and gave himself up for her. Now, we are accustomed to such teaching regarding our personal salvation, are we not? So much so that we might wonder whether this statement in Ephesians 5 is to be distinguished from our individual salvation in any way. Indeed, most of what the Apostle laid out in Ephesians to describe what Christ has done for his Ecclesia are things which the Lord has also performed for the saints as individuals. We can see that in the table that will come up on your screen now. Christ loved the Ecclesia. The Apostle Paul said of himself, Christ loved me. We've just been considering the statement Christ gave himself up for her. The Apostle Paul in the same chapter in Galatians says, Christ gave himself for me. These are all the same Greek, I should emphasise. In verse uh, 26 of Ephesians, we learn that Christ sanctifies the Ecclesia. We learn in Hebrews that the individual saints are sanctified by the blood of the covenant. We learn also in verse 26 of Ephesians 5 that we have been cleansed by Christ as an Ecclesia. We learn in 1 John chapter 1 the individual saints upon confession of their sins can be cleansed from all unrighteousness and then that very rich language about the presentation of the Ecclesia to Christ himself in splendour that she might be holy and blameless are expressions that are taken up about us as individuals in Colossians 
and in Jude. So the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Do these correspondences indicate that we should understand Christ's sacrifice for the Ecclesia only as his work on behalf of all the individual saints who make up his Ecclesia? Or was the Apostle Paul teaching something about Jesus' work for the Ecclesia which is to be distinguished from his work for individuals? As is evident from the table up there on the screen, there, if there are um, his, uh, the law's accomplishments are very much the same for the ecclesia and for the individuals. And so, if there are any distinguishing features of what Christ did for the ecclesia, these must exist principally between the ecclesia and the individuals between the beneficiaries of Christ's work. The work is the same. If there are any differences, they are between the beneficiaries. Now, of course, we know it is axiomatic that the ecclesia comprises all those who are redeemed in Christ. But at least in this sense, therefore, the description of Christ's accomplishments in Ephesians 5 verses 25 through 27 is about his work for all the saints. However, there are indications throughout the Apostles' teaching in this letter that the Ecclesia is an entity that is to be distinguished even from the sum of all the saints. And it's crucial that we understand these distinctions so that we are able to understand the full significance of the Apostle's statements about what Christ did for his Ecclesia, including that he gave himself up for her, and that this sacrifice was central to the Ecclesia's foundation being laid so that Christ could proceed with building her. Now before exploring these indications, it will be helpful, I believe, to discover how Christ's work for the Ecclesia was foreshadowed by God's redemption of the people of Israel and of their establishment as a nation. By analogy, since we can readily perceive the distinctiveness of a nation as compared with a large number of people, this will illustrate to us the need to understand the identity of the Ecclesia as distinguished from just the sum of all the redeemed. And this will also assist us to recognise some of the features of the Ecclesia which are unique to it rather than just to the aggregate of the individual saints. So let's think about God's work in establishing his people, having redeemed them, as a nation. The first thing to note is that there is a particular correspondence of language between the Apostle Paul's writings about the people of Israel 
redeemed out of Egypt and his writings about Christ's seclusion, especially as these relate to Christ giving himself in love. Turn with me to Titus and chapter 2. Titus in chapter 2 we read this in verse 14 Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession the apostle statement there in Titus about Christ having given himself to purify for himself a people clearly matches the language in Ephesians where the Apostle wrote Christ gave himself for the Ecclesia. It's the same expression in the Greek. In fact there is more than this because there is a range of other language shared between Ephesians and Titus which underlines the correspondence between the two descriptions of what Christ has accomplished. And we can see that shared language in the table that will come up on your screen now. The one we've already seen, Christ gave himself up for her, corresponds to Jesus Christ gave himself for us. The language of being cleansed in Ephesians 5 is employed in Titus 2 and verse 14 as well, where it's rendered purified. And the washing of water with the word, in Ephesians 5 is taken up in Titus in chapter 3 by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit there in Titus 5 Titus 3 and verse 5 is, is, uh, is found in uh, that language is found in Ephesians in chapter 2 and chapter 4 and these correspondences explicitly connect what Christ did for his ecclesia in giving himself for her with the redemption of a people out of Egypt by God. This is because the Apostle Paul in Titus 2 and verse 14 employed a composite of allusions to several Hebrew scriptures clearly referring to these as typological for what Christ did for his people. And it's one of those in allusions in particular that take us to the establishment of all those people redeemed out of Egypt, not just as a group of people, but as a people and a nation. And we can see that in the table that will come up on your screen now. The language for himself, a people for his own possession, is clearly taken from Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 where we read about a people for his treasured possession. Literally, that can be rendered for himself, for a people of possession. And you can see the correspondence of language very clearly uh, in Titus 2, verse 14. There. And it's evident that Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6 draw heavily on the Lord God's own declaration to his people through Moses 
in Mount Sinai. You can see that in the table that will come up on your screen now. Deuteronomy, the words holy, his treasured possession out of all the peoples is clearly taken from Exodus 19 and verses 5 and 6 where the Lord God himself speaking to the people said, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You shall be a holy nation. Now the combination of these observations shows that the establishment of those redeemed out of Egypt as a people and as a nation lie in the background to descriptions of what Christ has done for his people and consequently for his ecclesia in giving himself for her. These parables are further underpinned by recognising that the language used in Isaiah 28 and verse 16 about a foundation being laid through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of a foundation upon which Christ would build his ecclesia. That language is also used in a figurative reference to God's establishment of a holy nation at Mount Sinai. We haven't got time to turn to it, but this is what it says in Psalm 102, using the language of laying a foundation to speak about the establishment of this nation as a nation, as a holy people by God when they were brought out of Egypt. Of old, the psalmist says, of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. So these are all reasons the language of Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 7 were taken up by the Apostle Peter to describe the elect of the dispersion. You remember his words. We won't turn them up again. 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The Christians in the dispersion of the Jewish dispersion have this language applied to them, just as the Apostle Paul in Titus 2 applied it to the Ecclesia in Crete. And, closing the circle, this is why Stephen testified before the council that the people and the holy nation established at Mount Sinai was an ecclesia. You remember in Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen testified, Moses was in the ecclesia in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. Now, that's a wealth of typological correspondence between the ecclesia of Christ as his people and the people redeemed out of Egypt and established as a nation by the Lord God. And identifying this wealth of typological correspondences actually then helps us recognise that Ephesians 5 also employs language fairly significantly from Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 7. And this, <clears throat> as elsewhere, embeds the typology of God's redemption of a people and a nation to himself into what Paul wrote about Christ's work for the Ecclesia. And this language evidently builds on the Apostles' earlier allusions to 
Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5 and Deuteronomy 6 when he wrote earlier in Ephesians of God's redemption of the purchased possession that's language from Ephesians 1 and verse 14 now the, the range of language in Ephesians 5 from Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 7 is extensive you see it there in that slide you know, the, the language of love, uh, the language of commanding not to be covetous, the language of saints being holy and so on, of an inheritance, and there's more. There's the mention of the kingdom of Christ and of our God, which clearly picks up the language of a kingdom in Exodus chapter 19, with the people who are a holy nation being established as God's kingdom, and so on. And, and, and so we could go through those one by one, but we don't the conclusion to draw from these things is that the teaching in Titus about Christ giving himself for a people and in Ephesians about Christ giving himself for the Ecclesia both refer to the historical foundation of a people a holy nation and an Ecclesia at the time of their redemption from Egypt. And we'll consider the, the consequences of that, the significance of that in a moment. But first it is important to reflect on an aspect of Titus's resonance with Ephesians and the background and foreshadowing event of the Exodus because this further underlines a fundamental aspect of Christ's teaching about his ecclesia which we have previously considered in titus the apostle paul taught that christ gave himself for his people to redeem them and so that they might be for himself a people of his own possession it follows from this that the teaching in ephesians 5 about christ giving himself for the Ecclesia entails that he redeemed the Ecclesia to himself for his own possession. And this is another reason why Jesus referred to the Ecclesia as my Ecclesia in Matthew chapter 16. The Ecclesia is his because he gave himself for her. And by that he redeemed her from lawlessness and purified her to himself for his own possession. The Ecclesia is not ours because none of us can ransom another or give to God the price of his life as we are taught in Psalm 49. Only, only our Lord Jesus Christ has done and so, the Ecclesia belongs to him. Now, before considering the implications of these conclusions for understanding the distinguishing features of Christ's Ecclesia, as opposed to the aggregate of all the saints, we should know how they relate to God's covenants of promise. We've already seen that Christ 
placed fulfilment of his father's covenant promise to David at the heart of his work of building the ecclesia. And that that covenant of promise underpinned Peter's confession that what was revealed to him by his father was true. This exposition shows that the same is true of God's covenant promises to Abraham. It is evident that the foundation of God's holy nation at Mount Sinai was a figurative fulfilment of his promise to make of Abraham's seed a great nation. This is a promise that is truly fulfilled in the holy nation who have faith in the promised seed and which was founded by Christ through the laying down of his life. The correspondence of Christ's ecclesia with the people and the nation who were established at the time of their redemption from Egypt by God helps us to discern by analogy aspects of the ecclesia's identity which distinguish her from just the sum of those who comprise the ecclesia. The concept of a nation comprises more than the sum of the individual citizens. For example, while a nation is made up of individual people, it also includes many other distinguishing features and defining characteristics. A nation could be a kingdom, whereas an aggregate of individuals without some other defining characteristics cannot. For a nation to function as itself, it must have administrative structures and laws. A distinguishing aspect of a nation include shared language and values that bind the nation together culturally and socially. To sustain itself, a nation will deliberately attend to nurturing the individuals within the nation so that they can become effective contributors to national wealth and health. There are also other things that a nation can accomplish which individuals acting on their own or even as a group without any relevant structure cannot such as defeating adversarial nations that God has appointed to judgment. All of these things indicate that a nation is distinct in identity from just the aggregate of people that make up that nation. And God's redemption of his people from Egypt and his foundation of them as a holy nation encompassed such characteristics. And it is evident that all such characteristics were to be created and formed by the revelation of the Lord's word to them. Likewise, Distinguishing features analogous to these will be found in apostolic teaching about Christ's Ecclesia. 
As was the case with the creation and establishment of the holy nation by the Lord God's word, so also the word of Christ functioned in sanctifying and cleansing the ecclesia at its foundation. We read that in Ephesians 5 in the reading that we took. Have a look there just to confirm this. Ephesians chapter 5. We read there in verses 25 and 26. Christ gave himself up for the ecclesia that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Consequently, the ecclesia comprises the total of the individual saints, but it encompasses much more than this. And we need to recognise this. When Christ gave himself up for the ecclesia, he sacrificed himself not just for each individual saint, and not just for the sum of the saints, but also for all those things that bind the ecclesia together as a distinct entity. More particularly, he laid in Zion the precious cornerstone for the foundation of his ecclesia. This body of people comprises individuals who share the same faith in God's covenant promises. But the Ecclesia has its own identity, which is distinct from just the sum of its individual members. Our understanding of what Christ has done for us as individuals ought not to obscure our understanding, our perception of Paul's teaching in Ephesians. This point is worthy of reinforcement in the face of increasing individualism evident in post-modernist societies and, consequently, within the Ecclesia. And so, to repeat the point, while it is true that Christ gave himself for each of us as individuals, it is also the case that, in his death, he gave himself for the ecclesia and in doing so established a foundation upon which he would build her. The characteristics of the ecclesia which distinguish it as an entity from the sum of its individual members are many and they require detailed analysis which is outside the scope of our study today. But there are illustrations of these found in Ephesians 5 which introduce some of them. For example, the individual saints are in focus when the Apostle wrote that we are members of his body. Bodily members constitute a functioning body, Christ's body, only when they are held together, as it says in Ephesians 4 by every joint. And such joints evidently are figures to describe the characteristics of the ecclesia which bind us together, just as administrative structures and laws and shared language and cultures, uh, shared language and values bind together a nation. This description of individual saints as members of Christ's body underlines our submissive relation to a our submissive relationship to our head, 
as it says, Christ is the head of the Ecclesia and is himself its saviour, the Ecclesia submits to Christ, but the talk of us being members of Christ's body also speaks, as the Apostle wrote elsewhere, of binding characteristics such as the interdependence and mutuality in the sense of relationships with one another. We read about those things in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12. These things have much more than just the collection of individual saints in focus. And we do well to consider what each of us is doing to contribute to these binding features in fellowship with our head. In another example, Ephesians 5 speaks of the Ecclesia as Christ's bride, a role which is fulfilled by the Ecclesia as a whole and not, not by individual saints. In fact, this relationship with his bride is an aspect of why Christ gave himself up for her. As it says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the Ecclesia and gave himself up for her. An appreciation of this aspect ought to encourage us to reflect on how we can collectively, as Christ's Ecclesia, be ready to be presented to him in splendour, without splot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now there are many other distinguishing features of the Ecclesia as an entity as opposed to the aggregation of all the individual saints. But the focus of this exposition is to highlight this fact. Christ gave himself up for the Ecclesia and thereby laid a foundation upon which she would be built. This is in addition to his giving of himself for us as individuals. And this distinction has practical implications for us. While it is true that Christ died for each of us, any one of us can fail to participate in the presentation of the Ecclesia to Christ in splendour. And this will happen if we do not walk in a manner worthy of our calling. On the other hand, the Ecclesia for whom Christ gave himself and who will be presented to him in splendour does not fail. This is the Ecclesia that Christ promised to build. And Christ does not fail in his work. From this point of view, the Ecclesia for which Christ gave himself, gave himself speaks of an ideal which is not dependent on the individual saints who would comprise her when he takes her to himself as his bride at the kingdom's establishment. This is not to say the ideal is not real. The Apostle Paul made it plain that the Ecclesia is being built in the present time. Rather, the ideal status of the Ecclesia puts the spotlight on each of us as individual saints to determine whether we will participate in it. All the aspects of the work performed by Christ for the Ecclesia are pertinent also to individual believers. And this is how we begin. This is how we begin the work of being members of the Ecclesia and then to continue our participation in his ideal Ecclesia.
the ecclesia does not exist without the individuals who make up the ecclesia but it does continue to exist without any individual who fails consequently the ecclesia sees its culmination in splendour irrespective of whether any one of us walks worthy of the calling to which we have been called and from these findings we must acknowledge we must acknowledge that the ecclesia is not only greater and more glorious than any individual but that it is also greater and more glorious than even the sum of all the individual saints that make up the ecclesia as individual members we have a responsibility toward these better things if we are to participate in Christ's redemptive work we have an obligation to recognize our responsibility toward these matters this demands effort from us in ensuring the distinct identity and functioning of the ecclesia always acknowledging that it is it has been founded founded by Christ giving his life for her we must continually ask ourselves what am I doing to contribute to the identity of the ecclesia as Christ's bride and to his proper preparation as Christ's bride our Lord gave himself in sacrifice for the ecclesia what am I prepared to do for her as part of her such a realisation ought to impact our attitude towards the Ecclesia. The more conscious we are that Christ gave himself for the Ecclesia, the more likely it is that our behaviour in and towards the Ecclesia will be, or ought to be, effective for good. So again that brings us to some fundamental conclusions about the Ecclesia and our responsibilities within it and toward it. Christ giving himself up for the Ecclesia was essential to his work of building the Ecclesia. This work could not start until his sacrifice was fulfilled. Christ's sacrificial death forms a fundamental part of the Ecclesia's foundation. In laying the foundation, he laid down his life. While the Ecclesia of Christ comprises a collection of individuals who believe God's promises fulfilled in his Son, it is clear from the fact that Jesus gave himself for her as well as for individuals that the ecclesia is more than this it is more glorious and greater than us even than the sum of us and this demands effort from each of us in ensuring the distinct identity and functioning of the ecclesia and finally if Christ is to be our example the fact that Christ gave himself for the Ecclesia demands, demands that we be living sacrifices on behalf of the Ecclesia and its welfare. 
Despite the pressures of individualism, we ought to subject ourselves as individuals to the greater and more glorious work of the Ecclesia's existence and needs. Well, I'd like to um, thank 